Hello and welcome to We Need to Talk About Whiteness with myself, Miriam Francois. This is your podcast for conversations around race, identity, and specifically the meaning and impact of white racial identity. For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is connected to a website with further materials and resources for those who may wish to dig a little deeper into the whiteness conversation. So for that, head over to www.weneedtotalkaboutwhiteness.com. So today I'm joined by a very special guest. She's the author of several books, including a collection of poetry, Love is a Traveler and We Are Its Path, Huma's Travel Guide to Islamic Spain, and most recently, the travelogue memoir, The Invisible Muslim, which we will hear more about today. Medina Tanur Whiteman was born in Granada, Spain in 1982 to American English Muslim convert parents. A writer and musician, her latest book, The Invisible Muslim, grapples with what it means to be a white Muslim, an issue I can very much relate to. Medina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So just for context, this episode is being recorded in June 2020 at the height of the global protests following the death of George Floyd in what isn't even the latest incident of another African-American life lost in police custody. Across the world, crowds have been showing solidarity with the African-American community's ongoing civil rights struggle. And that's also led to a white lash. That's shorthand for a white backlash. So I have no doubt we'll be touching on some of those issues today. But first off, I think we should learn a little bit more about our guest. Medina, perhaps we could start off by hearing a little bit about your background and upbringing, which I think it's probably fair to say is somewhat unusual. And maybe we could get into that by hearing about how you got your name, which for those who are wondering is a beautiful name, which means the city of light. Um, so Medina, tell us, tell us, how did you, how did, how were you, born Medina Tanur Whiteman. <laughs> well, it's kind of a, it's almost a, a, a joke, really. Some people would say it's sort of divine irony. Um, my father is English, white English, um, although not obviously. We have family members who are mixed race and who also have the surname Whiteman. Um, my mother is American, uh, WASP origins. Um, from Scots-Irish and Alsace-Lorraine um, backgrounds, but several centuries back. So they both uh, became Muslim through um, separately through different uh, Sufi communities and met in San Antonio, Texas, where they were both living, um, both connected to a Sufi community under the Iraqi Sufi Sheikh Fadlallah Hayri. Mm-hmm. And they met, they married and moved to the UK. First of all, they were living in a community in Norwich. And that's where I was conceived. And then um, they heard that there was another community uh, sort of connected, um, burgeoning in Granada. And of course, for many Muslims, especially European Muslims, you know, and Al-Andalus, Granada, it's, it sort of paints such a beautiful romantic picture of 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 Islam in Europe and indeed it is actually an amazing history it's not without its um, ups and downs for sure but um, but it is a fascinating uh, it has a fascinating legacy and it is tangible still even 500 years after officially uh, the political state of you know the Islamic um, emirate of Granada um, ended so they drove down I was actually in the womb at the time um, and I was born in Granada in the Albaicin um, uh, again, very romantic story. My mum was looking at the Alhambra while giving birth to me with um, ice cubes in her mouth because it was August and extremely hot. Oh, wow. And, and at that time, just as I was born, um, a young student of Islam called Hamza Yusuf was coming back from Mauritania where he'd been studying with Sheikh Marabat al-Hajj. And um, he gave me a name, which was actually a, a usage that he had come across among Tuareg people in Mauritania. Medina to Nord, normally, uh, as far as I know, um, Medinas are Medina to Monawara. This is more usual sort of appellation. Mm-hmm. But so they, my parents were looking for a name and that was the name he gave me. 
And and so in for those who perhaps aren't as familiar with um, you know the ins and outs of the Muslim community, you you are someone who is racialized as white, and you were born into a predominantly Muslim community in what was effectively the last seat of an Islamic empire in Europe. Would that be would that be a fair description? Yes, I mean what the Muslims in Spain now are. There's a, it's very, very mixed, although when I was born in 1982, that was only a few years after the um, uh, dictator end, uh, had died, Francisco Franco, he's a fascist, kind of quasi-fascist dictator. So he had kept the country very, very closed, and so it had been closed to immigration really until the late 70s, beginning of the 80s. And so when I was born, there were some Moroccans, there were Syrians, um, and there were a number of converts um, who were Spanish, not actually from Granada specifically, but uh, from various parts of Spain. And they'd all kind of congregated there because it was a very symbolic place, you know, the Alhambra. Of course. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll come back to uh, the story around Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, because for those who don't know him, um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf is probably one of the, if not the most well-known English-speaking uh, Islamic scholar internationally. I think he, that's fa it's fair to say that when Sheikh Hamza Yusuf uh, rolls into your city to give a talk, uh, you can expect, you know, I would say crowds of at least thousands, if not possibly tens of thousands in some cases to turn up um, for his speeches. So he's, he's in incredibly popular, but in recent years has um, ended up uh, causing a lot of controversy with some comments he's made, particularly around Black Lives Matter. So uh, we'll come back to that in, in a minute. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, given that you were born into, um, you know, I suppose uh, I live in a context where I, I'm, I'm a minority as a Muslim in, in, in the UK. You, you grew up in a context where your community um, was, I suppose, a minority community with regards to Spain. But were you surrounded predominantly by Muslims? Was this like a little Muslim bubble in Spain? Or were you, did you still have a sense of yourselves being a minority compared to the majority? Well, I left Spain actually when I was one. So my parents kind of, uh, there was a lot of, how to describe, um, disturbance, I guess you could say. People described it as a fitna um, in that community at that time. There was lots of arguments and, and some beef. And so my parents <laughs> left and we went to the UK. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually grew up in a very... Um, white and non-Muslim area, although funnily enough, this was in, in this was in East Anglia in Essex, border of Cambridge and Essex, which is where my dad was from. So he was born in Saffron Walden. It's a very quaint little market town, kind of goes back to Tudor times. But we lived in a very tiny little village, which was the only place my dad, my parents could find a house. And this was not even a village, it was a hamlet of about 70 people, of whom two of them were white guys called Abdul Latif. Okay. Which is, I don't know what the odds are of that. Anyway, so they were fairly two, unusual, two, I would say. Got yeah. to be, got to be. So both um, American English convert families, um, which is why we moved to that village because they were already living there. So okay. I went to a school which was, you know, it was 1,400 kids, vast majority white. Um, we knew some Muslims in Cambridge, and so we would go and hang out with other Muslims in Cambridge, which is. It is a quite a cosmopolitan place um, because of the universities. I mean, it does have its elitist side to it as well, because, of course, not everybody can travel to a place like Cambridge and, you know, go to university there just just financially. Um, but we did rub shoulders with Muslims of all different, you know, so many different backgrounds. And, and that was really quite magical, especially. So we had our sort of home, and uh, you know, house and um uh, school kind of existence in which I just passed for you know anybody else and and at that time I think people didn't really know very much about Islam and Muslims anyway they didn't have a clue about converts and so it just was it was one of these conversations that we never had mm -hmm. um, you know I'd sort of say my name is Medina people are like oh that's a nice sounding name it's kind of foreign and exotic sounding but then they wouldn't necessarily push any further because they just kind of would make an assumption that well maybe my parents just liked giving me an, an exotic name. And you had no identifi identifi identifiable markers, I guess, of being Muslim. You weren't wearing a headscarf or anything that would kind of single you out as being different, as it were. Right. I mean, for myself personally, I mean, I, I kind of have this 
on-off relationship with hijab and I, I kind of love many aspects of it um I love to be able to do it um but I also don't feel like it's something that I I can do every day all the time and feel completely authentic with um so as a as a teenager I didn't I didn't wear hijab my mum would always wear sort of you know kind of neat little scarf tied at the back so but it was quite sort of ambiv- ambiguous and a lot of mm. people would just sort of go well she's she's white she's American well maybe she belongs to some kind of Christian cult or something like one of the mm. towns we lived in we there were Plymouth brethren there and the women would wear a little kind of bandana and um so I don't think she got a huge amount of questions really uh, we really capitalized on our white privilege 100 mm. by not sort of um inciting questions although we would have been completely happy to answer you know it's it's not that we we were sort of hiding our religion it wasn't like we were crypto muslims or something like that but it's just that that is such that's a conversation that you know what it's like in in british society people don't want to talk about religion or politics because yeah they feel like these are very passionate topics and it yeah reveal aspects of people's persona that maybe we're not comfortable with and so it just ends up being kind of the elephant in the room yeah well I refer to myself as covert I'm covert yeah. Muslim <laughs> is the way that I refer to it when I'm not identifiable in any way and, and and that's what it feels like in a climate where certainly there are certain aspects of yourself which you know if rendered visible become contentious and change the mood Um, which leads me nicely to one of the first questions I really wanted to ask you which was when would you say that you first became aware of your white racial identity and uh, what what were the circumstances around that? Yeah it's it's funny because I was reflecting on this a lot when writing my book and I can't think of one specific moment but I do remember as I must have been quite a young child because we would travel down to London quite often to visit friends there and um, yeah, so the environment in Cambridge, I was, was going to mention earlier that we would go to like a, a Sufi zikr, for example, a gathering of uh, remembrance, sort mm-hmm. of poetry, song, for anybody who's not aware of that term. Um, and there'd be people from Indonesia, Nigeria, Syria, Bosnia. This was about the time of the Bosnian War as well. There were a few refugees there. Um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, Morocco. It was very, very varied. Um, but still, you know, Cambridge is still a relatively small city. We had we had a number of friends in London, so we'd go there. Um, my mum says that she remembers taking me to a gathering of East Africans when I was a baby, and then I would wa- I was watching two women talking, speaking in Swahili, and uh, like looking at their faces going back and forth as if I was trying to understand them, which is weird because then I ended up studying Swahili at university, and I didn't mm. know that story at the time. But um, I remember visiting a couple who uh, she's. Kashmiri, British Kashmiri, and he's white English convert, and really kind of almost like sinking into the beauty of her face. But it was so, you know, without wanting to, I don't want to paint this as a kind of exoticized thing because she was Mm. also perfectly normal. You know, (laughs) normal hate that word, but you know what I mean. She was a friend of my mum's. We just, it was a. how do you describe it? It was like an Eid celebration with kids running around and it was all very kind of fluid and sweet. It was a very nice environment. But I, I guess I remember being a child and kind of thinking, wow, I really don't look like her. And there's mm-hmm. so many people that I would come across among in Muslim settings that I really looked different from. So I started becoming aware that I was in a minority, um, probably as a child, um, certainly among Muslims. And I mean, globally, white people are in a mo- minority anyway. But to go to, for example, uh, an Eid prayer in Cambridge, you know, where the khutbah is in, or it was in Urdu. I don't know if this is different now, but um, I must have been 95% Pakistani. So the khutbah would be the Friday sermon for those who are wondering. So um, Muslims gather for prayer on a Friday. It's a... uh, com- communal prayers are mandatory for, for men uh, and, and encouraged for everyone else on a Friday and so that's what the khutbah would be it would be the sermon delivered there sorry just for anyone yeah so I, I, yeah. I should have um, clarified then so um, when I was growing when I was young I think converts were it was a fairly rare thing to see white Muslims so often people would kind of look at us like oh hello <laughs> what are you who are you where are you from kind of thing and there was definitely a novelty uh, associated with being white in those environments but it also it could be uncomfortable it, it it had there was a whole range of of possibilities from people being very welcoming and very sweet to you know 
kind of blanking and being like, whoa, what are you? Um, to almost sort of, there was a definitely feelings of alienation there. Um, and then on the other end of the scale to people kind of being like, wow, we really, we're really glad that you're here kind of thing. Mm. Like maybe not articulated quite in that way, but a sort of over uh, enthusiasm. And I, I remember one time I was at university, I went to, uh, I was actually going to a mosque for, I guess, for a Friday prayer. And so I was wearing a hijab and I went into the news agent's opposite looking for ML, which is a Muslim lifestyle magazine that I'd contributed to quite recently, just before then. Where I and began I asked, my career in journalism. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd written an article, a couple of articles and I'd, I'd, I'd gone in there to look for it. And the guy said, oh, why are you interested in this? And he was obviously kind of curious. He saw I covered my hair. And so I said, well, because I'm Muslim. And he became so kind of um, over interested I would say it made me feel quite uncomfortable and I and I bought a bus pass that's that's how old I am we used to have bus passes back in the day before pre pre and he wouldn't let me get the change like I, I was kind of like can I have my bus pass please can I have my change I want to go and I felt mm. very uncomfortable and then the week after I went in and I was wearing a hoodie and I just had the hood up I didn't have a hijab on and the same guy didn't recognize me and he didn't practically didn't look at me and I just bought the bus 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 and I left. So mm. I think sometimes there is a kind of fetishization, and I've heard this from a few other white converts. Which it, it's one of a whole array of uh, responses, and I want to emphasize that's only one of them. Mm. No, for the for the greater part, what I found is that Islam is a really um, interesting and amazing sphere in which I can relate on a very personal, very deep level with people from gosh you know hundreds of different of, of nationalities um let alone you know languages and ethnicities and it's, it's a phenomenally diverse space depending on where you go of course yeah well it's an interesting one isn't it for us as a community because i think um at, uh, on one hand the ideals of the faith uh, certainly i'm sure like the ideals of most faiths are egalitarian in nature you know we have the sayings that um you know your someone is either your brother in faith or your brother in humanity and from imam ali and we have so many references that tell us that we are essentially fundamentally all equal in the eyes of god aside from the good deeds that we do in this world and i think i don't know if you would agree with that but that seems to me the the kind of core uh, framework for the value of human beings in theory as yeah. Muslims. Yeah. Now, the theory is then different to both the practice historically and the practice more contemporaneously. And I suppose I just was was wondering, in writing your book, how did you navigate the sort of gap between those two things? Because I think on one hand, as Muslims, we really want to idealize this textual mm -hmm. framework, which says, but no, you know, we don't, we don't distinguish, we don't discriminate because it's not possible. We're not allowed to judge people on that basis. And, and all the, the beauty that is, I suppose, to be found in, in our ideals, whatever faith or non-faith we're coming from. Um, and on the other hand, of course, we come from a community which is um, highly racialized, um, you know, all societies are, but in the Muslim community, uh, similarly to wider society, if not p potentially worse in some regards, um, I, I can speak to the fact that, you know, let's take something as simple as wanting to get married. If you're a white convert, as, as a, that's how people refer to you, uh, certainly not how I refer to myself, um, the convert bit. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you'd find getting married fairly easy. Whereas yeah. I remember um, a young uh, black woman coming to the mosque um, and and sort of saying, was she looking to get married? And she was essentially dismissed. I wasn't even trying to get married and people were harassing me, um, you know, almost uh, in, in an, in an over-exuberant way um a slightly obsessive way um and so i think from that to to kind of if you look at the the geography of prayer space and who gets to go where in the mosque and um so so how did you navigate that conversation in your book the the conversation around race and religion 
Well, that's a very interesting topic. It's, it's, a, it's a huge one. It took me quite a long time to kind of grapple with it, really. But I think what it came down to was I had to recognize my white privilege, which is not something I even had a vocabulary for, I think, when I first started thinking about race, which was, must must have been over 20 years ago, really. Um, but at that time, I mean, now there are incredible resources, anti-racism resources, and people are much more kind of savvy about just the terminology we use and sort of optical allyship and all this kind of stuff, which if you're on social media, it's like, you know, it's, it's super um, actual. How do you say that? You know, on um, trend. On yeah. trend. There you go. Yeah, I um, think but, there's a lot. There's a lot of fashionable terminology, I would say, at yeah. the moment. Yeah. I wonder how that's all going to end up panning panning out. I hope it does. I, I really hope that this is a, a, a pivotal moment in our kind of awareness and, and, and history. But what I felt like I, I, when I was growing up, my parents did have quite an, an outward um, look. You know, they're, what's the expression I'm looking for? They were outward facing in the sense that they looked to Arab or Persian writers and philosophers. And my dad had been uh, really heavily into jazz music from the 50s and 60s. That's how he actually came into Islam. So he was, you know, really admired black culture. And my mum also had been very interested in, um, you know, she really witnessed the the uh, desegregation. Like she, her house her town was bisected by the Mason-Dixon line. Her house was one block to the north. And black people in her town still live on the other side of the railroad tracks from white people. Mm. So it was very, very uh, present for her. And um, she was born in 1950. So, you know, she was kind of coming of age and witnessing um, phenomenal changes happening in her country. Um, so they were kind of fairly, um, they were aware for sure of their whiteness, but it wasn't really a discussion we really had commonly because again like I said we didn't really have a terminology for it we weren't in wider mainstream white dominant society nobody was telling me that my race was a problem nobody was even telling me I had a race and that was the thing that I found really disturbing because I felt Mm -hmm. like I'm I'm living in kind of a bubble here where you know when when you talk about ethnic the word ethnic conjures up a Moroccan souk or you know Turkish kilims or Indian rugs or like Zulu dancing or something like this it's kind of very uh, stereotyped and it's very black and brown and so nobody kind of white people weren't being encouraged to include themselves in that category or to really sort of think of themselves like maybe on a census you say what is your ethnicity white you know take and then after that you don't have to think about it ever again and that I found quite disturbing because for me it was like an elephant in the room um but what did the elephant look like what does whiteness look like to you? Well, whiteness, the more you look at world history, particularly events from the last five, six hundred years <clears throat> globally, um, whether it's colonization or colonialism, settler colonization, neoliberal globalization, it's one story after another of dominance. You know, this is the political side of the coin. I think of whiteness as having two sides of the coin. One is political and one is personal. And of course, they both prop each other up because the political is personal and you don't have you don't have politics without people. So the political side of it is a kind of, <clears throat> a, a, how would you say, a kind of a crystallized set of structures and processes that are based on dominance and of taking whether it's land or minerals or resources from a given population, but a, a population that is othered, racially othered. <clears throat> and that's propped up by a personal notion that we are superior to them because we're more human. I mean, this is, it's really so vile, this this whole idea, but I mean, it sort of goes around in circles and it sort of almost becomes like a vortex because the politics then influences people's perceptions and people's perceptions then lead to policy and you know it sort of spirals like this and the personal side of it the personal side of it if you are a white person living in a white majority is that the people around you look like you the characters in the tv programs and the movies that you watch are likely to look like you or maybe there's a sort of token minority but it's always you know race is like that's something for black and brown people and so racism becomes kind of fixed as something that other people have to deal with and that's something that I find I've always found very 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 problematic I think when I first started um, feeling this way probably as a teenager 
I'm feeling really angry, like learning about American history, the treatment of the First Nations peoples, slavery, Jim Crow laws, um, and feeling quite disgusted at my my own people, if I could call them that, you know, I started thinking, is this just some kind of genetic predisposition? You know, obviously, dominance is something that is not exclusive to white people. It's existed among Arabs, among Chinese people, among practically anywhere you look, you can find systems of dominance, gender-based systems of dominance, and so on and so forth. Um, but the world that we live in now and the economic structures that are existent now are based on that. And it's, you know, it's a continuous timeline. It hasn't been sort of disrupted and then do you find sorry sorry, I was just gonna say do you find that moving between the two worlds of you know the subculture of being a Muslim where you know obviously that subculture exists within the wider culture of whiteness if you're European at least but within that subculture there is a somewhat the, the hierarchies are a little bit more muddled than in wider society they're still there um in, in that whiteness can't you know isn't just dissolved by religion but the person who will be giving the sermon in all likelihood who's a person of high regard of, of, of authority um is unlikely to be someone who's racialized as white right in in that context and uh, the people you learn from in your community mm-hmm. usually are not white um and so i i mean i don't know do you feel that there is anything in the experience of evolving in a subculture where actually not only the cultural references non-Western, you know, in the literature that we read and in the uh, even our, our, our kind of core religious texts emanate from from the Middle East. You know, does that have any impact, you think, on the way that we process whiteness as white Muslims? Yeah, I think it has a, a very um, intimate connection, actually, because on the one hand, <clears throat> people can become complacent. And this is the personal aspect of whiteness when I think that there's a huge problem with complacency um, that is specifically related to to whiteness when it's when it's in a um, white majority setting. If you're a white person in a non-white majority setting, you see all these other dynamics suddenly come up. So when I went to um, to Kenya and Tanzania, course as a white person in in East Africa you're going to be treated very differently to a black East African living coming to the UK so um it's it isn't the same it's not like I think it's easy to kind of think that by Mm. becoming Muslim that by becoming or or being Muslim um and forming part of this amazing multicolored globe hugging ummah you know while a Muslim community um, that that sort of absolves us of any kind of white privilege. But in, in many ways, it actually, I think, can be heightened, partly because mm. what we talked about before, the sort of um, people can be over-enthusiastic towards you, and particularly the marriage thing. Oh, my gosh. I saw yeah. somebody tw- tweeted recently, you know, somebody try and talk about racism among Muslims without discussing marriage. Go. <laughs> Just like... It's impossible because well, you know, of course I, it is. I've lost yeah. count. I've lost count of the the stories I've heard of of, of uh, Arab or Desi families who say, you know, we love our black brethren, but don't you dare marry a black man. You know. Well, we, well unfortunately, we're pretty... we, yeah, we we know this is this is a reality in the community that has to be said. It needs to be said, and it needs to be said clearly. I think and unequivocally that you know when it comes to the Muslim community, it's not just white people who are very discriminatory against black folk uh, oh, yeah. and don't particularly want them in their families. But I think obviously in those scenarios, it's coming with a whole other set of um, reasons uh, that are predominantly, I, I would think, linked to obviously a, a, a cultural context in some regards, but also down to class, I think. Yeah, I think um, yeah, working class communities. I mean, my mum's Irish and uh, we've talked a lot in, in our family about how the Irish community, in order to um, try and blend in more, um, has worked hard to try and disassociate itself from um, the working class roots. So the more middle class you become, the more quote unquote integrated you appear. Um, which obviously in terms of white privilege opens up many more uh, access doors for you um, and for people who are excluded from whiteness 
um, marrying into a group that is consistently demeaned is um, not going to afford the social ascension that white privilege affords. And, and we need to have that conversation. And I'm not sure. I mean, do you have any sense of whether it's happening? Are we are we beginning to have these conversations as Muslims? Well, it's interesting because I haven't done that many readings. I, I launched the book and then uh, I, was, I traveled to the UK. I did uh, a few uh, book presentations, one in, in Rumi's Cave in London, one in um, in Leeds, um, and then came back and coronavirus lockdown started. So I haven't had uh, so many opportunities to... The, the, the DMs and the, the sort of um, personal discussions I've had with people have been very much, you know, really celebrating this opportunity to start talking about this in much more detail. Not just because of my book, of course, there's lots of events that are um, making us a lot more aware of race. Um, and I was surprised at how enthusiastic people were that they, you know, immediately people start coming out with things and their own experiences. It becomes a discussion, you know, the yeah. the... The presentation I did at Rumi's Cave, they actually had to break it up and t- send us all home because we could have been there for hours. Mm-hmm. And people from so many different angles and so many, so much, I think there's so many grievances there. And this is what I mean by the, the elephant in the room. Like when you have pain, when anybody is experiencing pain, and it may be intergenerational, it may be, you know, something that it's hard to even put your finger on exactly. But when there's that pain that's there and it isn't being sort of recognized, it's just underneath the surface and all you have to do is just open your mouth and, and suddenly it's 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 out in the open and it's not a surprise to people. People are not shocked at all at, mm-hmm. um, you know, any any accusations of racism in, um, in the Muslim world because everybody's seen it. It's just yeah. that they don't really want to talk about it because... I think it's partly because they don't want to upset the apple cart. You know, it's like if you're struggling as it is to be, quote unquote, integrated. I have trouble with that term myself, but, um, you know, to sort of find social acceptance. And especially if your parents are immigrants or something like this, it might be like, OK, we're doing all right. Let's not mess things up by kind of stirring up muddy waters, you know. Um, mm. But um, I, I think mean, that I, it, I, some, yeah. challenges. Sorry, go on. No, I, I was just going to say it's, there's there are huge challenges there, and I think if you don't kind of address them at the beginning, then they can just kind of you you sort of limp along. It's not being kind of um, dealt with or healed in any way. And and I mean I think there probably is a sense, particularly among our the black community now, that you know it's probably about time that these things start to be challenged by people outside of the black community. You know that these. Um, that this latent racism, which, you know, by and large, we've probably ignored because it didn't affect us directly. We sort of felt uncomfortable around it, but we didn't challenge it head on in the way that we would had it been more profoundly personal. And I'm very conscious myself that when we talk about whiteness, that the conversation isn't the end goal, right? The conversation is the beginning of a process through, of, of I think, self-awareness, but of a journey in which confronting um, racism has to become deeply personal. Yeah. Um, and and I would love to explore that with yourself a bit more, because for me, I find that it's me, it's my faith that makes it deeply personal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in The fact that I believe to my core that, um, you know, God, does not judge us on our outwardly form mm. but on our on our deeds good and bad and and you know we have stories about you know the the black woman who who used to um clean the mosque and who died and, and the prophet sallam had come along to the mosque and asked where she was and mm. was very upset that no one had even told him um that she'd passed away mm. and and him sort of making clear to them that that actually this woman her station may be much higher than their own (laughs) so why would they ever not think to let him know of the passing of someone so dear to him so Mm. I feel that it is very personal for me in that sense and actually the more I've looked into and researched whiteness personally the more I've felt connected to my faith in trying to uh, hold myself to account more. Right. Um, so how how do you hold yourself to account, as it were? What tools do you use um, in order to 
not just become I guess a bystander of whiteness because mm. you know you can you can become more or less aware of how whiteness operates but mm. I think it is something different for it to become a sort of profound commitment to challenging it yeah um it's an interesting question it's a very good question um, I feel also the same way that there is there are amazing um, instances particularly if you go back to the very kind of earliest sources of um really out and out challenging of racism as well that that there was uh, somebody who kind of I, I don't know if it was really a racial slur but he addressed Bilal I mean I know it's kind of a cliche to bring up Bilal but in this context because he was for anybody who who doesn't know this story he was an Abyssinian slave with the Prophet whose life he saved and he freed him and made him the first um Muadim, the first person to um say the call to prayer even though he had he had a not a speech impediment, but his accent uh, was not uh, perfectly clearly Arabic. Um, but regardless, he had a very beautiful voice and it was a strong voice. And so he was appointed. And this is a, one of the things that people often like to, Muslims often like to bring up as an excuse, like, oh, we don't, we have Bilal, yes. we don't have racism in Islam. We always, I mean, Bilal oh, is like the Muslim equivalent of like uh, my best friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly. the Muslim equivalent. Yeah. So there was an account of um, one of the companions referred to him as, oh, you son of an Abyssinian woman. And he took it as he took it quite offensively. And I'm not entirely sure why. I'm guessing because it was for them, it was considered like a, a reference to his slave origins or I'm not sure exactly what it was. But he, he kind of just referred to him racially, I guess. Mm. And Bilal was really upset about this. And he went to the Prophet and he said, he explained what happened. The Prophet went to him and he said, you have to apologize. And the man, I can't remember now the name of the companion, he wept and he, le- he lay down on the floor and he said, Bilal, please put your foot on my neck, put it on my head and, and I won't let you lift your head from my head, your foot from my head until you have forgiven me. And then Bilal also wept and said, I'm not going to put my foot on, on a head that is, uh, that, that recites the scripture or something along these lines. So, yeah. but that was a very po- poignant um, example of, of directly combating racism. And he, you know, so Bilal took it to somebody who had moral authority at the time. He took it to the Prophet and he was, he was outraged. He was outraged and that's why he went and he confronted him. Um, and I think that that sense of moral outrage, I think sometimes people can kind of, kind of maybe not just Muslims, perhaps this is more of a, a, a broad, experience for religious people or people of some kind of form of spirituality is to feel like oh I don't really want to get angry because you know anger is bad mm. and um, there's a time for anger and there's a place for it and if it's channeled and it's used well mm. it's it's very interesting Audre Lorde says this in one of her essays uh, in a little collection of her essays that master's tools will never dismantle the master's house I think the name of the essay was uses of anger women uh, respond to anger and she said you know it, this is it's important to feel angry sometimes you go like, I, I have no time for your guilt I don't have no time for shame and those are the useful things if it's the beginning of knowledge guilt is only useful when it's a recognition of when you are at fault of something and then it's the beginning of knowledge and it's yes. not this kind of poisonous poor little me oh I'm so awful kind of self-flagellating thing it's like oh I've screwed up oh dear what can I do about that you know and Mm. then it's then it's something that's actually positive and the same same goes with anger like if you see something that's wrong and you're again this is the hadith if you see something that's wrong change it with your hand if you cannot change it with your hand change it with your tongue if you cannot change it with your tongue change it with your heart and that's the hate it in your heart isn't it yeah Yeah. hate Hate it it in your heart so there are useful there are positive uses even for hatred you know yeah but it's of hating something rather than a person. I think that's the point, is that if you, like, I don't like to sort of go around naming names and pointing fingers at people because God knows I'm just as <laughs> just as bad as anybody else. But also because, you know, nobody was born that way. Nobody's even, nobody's born a racist. This is all something that we're conditioned to, to have. And so I think it's having humility and accepting that we are liable to screw up, probably on a minute by minute basis, like not even just daily, but like we're probably constantly screwing up in some way or another and having the maturity to be able to say, to look at our, our behavior. And this for me is muhasaba, you know, this is calling yourself to account. And this is a process that's encouraged in Sufism, for example. Um, you don't have to be a Sufi to practice, of course. It's something I think 
it would be great to secularize it and make it a kind of, uh, you know, universal tool. It's a bit like mindfulness, you know, to sort of say, mm -hmm. right, how how am I doing? Asking your partner as well. I've heard people, Muslims say this, you know, um, look to your spouse, look to your loved ones, you know, ask them, how am I doing? Like this was actually suggested for men to to talk to their to their wives, you know, ask, you know, how am I doing? Am I being Am I being okay as a husband, you know, mm. and to listen to their responses and to take that in? What, so that, what, yeah, what, but what would you say to people who say, well, you know, your screw ups as a white person are, you know, c community tragedies for other communities? Mm -hmm. And so the bar, I mean, I, I sense, and I don't know what you think, but that in the current climate, there isn't much sympathy left for mm. the idea that you know people who are racialized as white can screw up even mm. though you know I, I sense that that's inevitable mm. um in some regards what what would you say to to someone who said you know well there's no more space to right. screw up there are Your too tears. many yeah. devastating consequences for right the screw up of the cop who got scared and shot someone, the screw up of the cop who thought that a packet of sweets was a gun, the screw up of the mm. cop who, you know, says, says he feared for his life and just shot blindly. I mean, is there that's a point at which... Up. I think yeah. that's, that's more than just a screw up. That's a unholy... Um... <laughs> I don't know, what can you call that act of evil? Like, I mean, that's, that comes out of stupidity. It comes out of fear. It comes out of ignorance. And you can kind of analyze it psychologically. And I think there's some usefulness to looking at the psychology of racism in order to be able to um, address it, to sort of be able to <clears throat> to speak to people in a way that will, I, I hope, you know, hopefully respond better. But as you say, it's like it's not. Rachel Cargill had a great saying on this. Um, she said anti-racism work is not self-development work for white people and that mm. really struck me because I sort of thought wow that that's really important for me to bear in mind as well because <clears throat> it's not just about sorry it's not just about becoming a better person that's something you hopefully will attain along the way but that's not the goal of it the goal is to liberate people of color from white supremacy that's actually yeah. the goal and that should be in front of our faces all the time. That should be held in mind all the time. This isn't this isn't an act of charity. It's not like oh, let's be kind to the to the poor suffering people. It's like no, this is there's some serious serious injustices that and and actually to take a sort of apolitical stance. I've also read recently, you know, this is this is an act of racism because it's it's only allowing things to kind of continue as they are, whereas. Actually, if you look at the really, um, you know, important shifts politically and socially it's in the last, you know, 100 years, that's come from agitation, that's come from unrest, it's come out of rioting, it's come out of, you know, violence even. Not to say that I condone violence per se, but I can completely understand where people are coming from if they're, if they're rioting, because, mm. you know, it's the voice of the unheard. So, yeah. Um, just just to pick up uh, briefly before we, we take a little passage from your book, um, you mentioned Bilal and I, I would be amiss if I did not reference the perennial question that Muslims get when they speak of the egalitarian principles of our faith, mm. um, the question of slavery within Islam. Mm. Um, how do you personally reconcile the idea that slavery existed within the earliest period um, of Islam, including during the, the, the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad himself, peace be upon him, that he himself um, owned a, a slave, um, although according to our beliefs that he, he freed that person um, as, as, as evidence of the principle that many of us believe he was encouraging um, which was a, a philosophy of, of liberation um, or a theology of liberation, as, as um, one scholar had put it. How do you personally recognize that? And do you feel that there were any problems in comparing the transatlantic slave trade and the forms of slavery that existed in 7th century Arabia? Yeah, there's definitely, um, I think there are definitely uh, 
problems in comparing them because of the fact that well I'm not I'm not exactly a historian although I'm, I'm interested in history and I love reading history so oh Medina we appear to have lost you a little bit more but to my knowledge of it um, since this early Islamic um, society didn't have prisons as mm. such so if they were to um, conquer any people again yeah the whole kind of imperialist side of things is, is also equally problematizable if that's a word but um, so prisoners of war would not be killed because that would just be ridiculous but um, and cruel but they would be enslaved and so that would be their sort of answer to what to do with people who are you know prisoners um, it's a very unpleasant thing to even think about and I can't say I condone it. I don't think that it, it's a good thing. Um, at the same time, I think it is kind of anachronistic to look back on those times and project our current ideas onto their way of life because we have certain options that maybe weren't, weren't open to them at the time. Um, Do you believe that slavery is permitted in Islam? No, I don't think it's permissible now for certain certain because we have other options we have and also if you look at the the evolution of of um, jurisprudence this has always taken into account changes in human ways of living and human existence and if you look at for example the way that um, the ottoman empire incorporated parts of eastern europe and the the rulings that they come up they came up with not specifically to relating to slavery but um, relating to people living in very cold climates, for example, like if you need to make ghusl after having sex, for example, there's a Hanafi ruling that states that you don't have to do it in the night to do, to do fajr. You can just do um, wudu, ordinary ablutions, and pray, and then have a shower later because mm -hmm. people were actually afraid of getting a cold in their head and dying, you know. So, yeah. like, just things like this, it's, just, it's kind of extraordinary how open-minded and flexible they could be I mean it's it's sort of feels strange now because there's not, not always that much evidence of it now but um so yeah you think that you know the the modern forms of jurisprudence would prohibit absolutely. slavery in in any in any modern form so well, on, on that note can we maybe hear a, a, an extract so just a, a brief extract from your book I mean there's so many passages that I found really interesting and I know that we haven't got much time left to discuss them but I'd love to hear a passage from that and then hopefully as well maybe pick up on this idea that I get the sense that you didn't feel othered as a Muslim um, because you know as you call yourself the invisible Muslim whereas I think that's very different from my experience of being a Muslim who did wear um, a headscarf on a consistent basis for, for 10 years or pretty much all my adult life and mm -hmm who I felt like I dropped through, uh, you know, I was Alice, Alice dropping through the looking glass. I suddenly, mm. suddenly walked into a shop and had a security guard, you know, stuck to my backside the whole time I was right. walking around or, you know, I didn't have enough cash for the bus back when we actually used money for the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, and was so used to kind of the, the the young the young sort of smile at the bus driver flick your hair and suddenly in hijab the guy was like nope you haven't got the right fare you can walk love I was like, mm, what yeah. that's never <laughs> happened to me before mm. um and just suddenly being aware of life becoming a little a little harder a little harder yeah. everything was suddenly uh you know the, I was not given the benefit of the doubt anymore and I also was very aware that white people were regarding me as n not white that much was clear to me or as a I traitor was there was so the race traitor stuff happened when people would identify me as white but having become Muslim mm. but what I would get a lot of was racial ambiguity even though a lot of people looking at me now would say well you don't look racially ambiguous at all but as soon as I put a headscarf on, I became racially ambiguous. Too many people racialized as white and racialized as black and brown too. I, I had 
Pakistani grandmas come up to me and say, you look just like my granddaughter in Kashmir. <laughs> um, and I'd have, um, but, 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 but that, was, that was not a problematic uh, framework, right? The problem would be in conversation with, and this would usually happen with white people who would say things like, um, you know, where are you from? And I'd say London. And then you'd get the inevitable dig. Or where you're really from. <laughs> where you're really from. And even then when I'd say, you know, well, I'm Irish and French. And they'd say, ah, so your dad's French Algerian. Thinking yeah. that they'd crack the code. You know? They're trying to place you all the time. Constantly. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I did read that, you know, you'd occasionally get asked if you were Lebanese. That, that happened to me a lot. Syrian and Lebanese would be frequent a lot of time. People, I, I remember getting stopped by the police on the underground shortly after the the London bombings and um, uh, the police officer came up to me uh, what I felt quite aggressively after clearing the platform and and said to me do you speak English and I just turned around and I said you know that's such an offensive question because if you had just said hello how are you you would have gathered within right. the same amount of time whether I spoke English or not, and it would have been a lot less offensive yeah. than the presumption that I don't. Um, so, yes, let's let's hear a little extract from your book and maybe we can pick up on, on some of that. Yeah, okay. I'll read a little bit about sort of what it was like growing up because I know I recognize what you're saying because I didn't grow up as a convert, but I saw lots of converts around me. And um, because I'm second generation, although I sort of had to, I guess, make a decision as a as an adult, whether I sort of really felt this was true to me or not. But um, but yeah, I have been surrounded by lots of converts all my life. And I, it's, it's a, yeah, quite a common experience, unfortunately. So I'm going to read a little bit from the prologue. Please do. My youth was marked by a growing sense that I belonged to some vaguely foreign Islamic place, unconnected to any specific land, but nonetheless definitely not English. This awareness underlay every childhood experience outside the walls of my home. It was present in sleepovers at classmates' houses, in the absence of the comforting sounds of grown-ups praying or the feeling of safety in Quranic talismans. This feeling was there on my A-level French exchange when I was paired with a Mormon girl. Perhaps the thinking was that Muslims and Mormons were both weird enough to get along. My exchange partner and her mum were sweethearts, but I felt too awkward to pray in her room and faked a day off sick to catch up all the prayers I'd missed. The feeling stood behind me defiantly when my home economics teacher, who was sore that I'd won the right to wear black trousers instead of the embarrassing uniform kilt, barked at me to remove the inordinate strings of hippie beads that hung around my neck sneering or is that against your religion too it laughed when a, a girl at school exclaimed oh i thought muslim girls all had jelly jewels in their belly buttons indeed there are pockets of essex where disney's aladdin is still held to be an animated documentary about the muslim world wow it's hard wow. sank when in a kebab shop near my school in a town where ethnic diversity was restricted to restaurants i asked pointedly if the meat was halal and was challenged to recite surat al-fatiha as Ooh, proof that i was muslim as well yeah that, that happened to me as well yeah <laughs> interesting i've had that getting into mosques it's 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 a very so curious I. thing i've heard i know of people who've been muslim for you know 50 years and are still they still hear rumors that they're spies so yeah. that traitor that traitorhood can go both ways because there can be white people who are like, oh, you've gone over to the other side because you're Muslim. So there's an assumption that politically you're going to be like anti-Western, for example. Yeah. And then there can also be that sort of, hmm, you're not quite, you're not quite one of us. You need to prove yourself extra. So, for example, how many Pakistani women do you know who don't wear hijab? And nobody ever questions that they're Muslim. Of but course. if you're if you're blonde, then people are going to be like, you what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which isn't to say, you know, poor little us, poor little white people. But but there's yeah, it's just tricky. It's a tricky thing to navigate. That's all. I was going to ask you a question that I think about a lot. Um, how does it make you feel to become aware, to increase your awareness about what your racial identity means how does that feel to realize what it is that your racial identity signifies oh god it's horrific it's it's really quite horrendous but again like we were saying before this the shame and the guilt doesn't really 
help anyone. I mean, I think it's important to go through that initially just to recognize that it is you are associated with um, systems of dominance um, and oppression that are ongoing. It's not just something that happened historically. It is still it's still very much alive and kicking today. Um, but, you know, you can't get away from your face. Like when I was young, I sort of really wished that I was not white. I wanted to be something that wasn't white. But of course, you can't appropriate that from somebody else either. You do have to accept who you are and kind of reckon with that. But it, it's mm. a constant sort of, you, you stretch. I feel like it's a stretching because it's an acceptance that, you know, you are connected in some way. So, for example, even if we're not, you know, personally, directly connected to, um, I don't know, a slave plantation, many white people are not, you know, maybe you can, if you if you go dig around a little bit, you often can find that. They say that the majority of old money in the UK comes from payouts that the Victorian government gave to slave yes. owners at abolition. Yeah. Half the of biggest, them turned around. Single biggest payout yeah. in history, in history right? in, after in history. the bailout of the banks, yeah. Yeah, and, and half of them turned around and, and reinvested their money in slave plantations in Brazil. So, you know, it's it's it makes you really feel quite disappointed in humanity and sort of think, God, how am I going to get away from this? But you can, yeah, to, to go back to the, the analogy of religion and faith, well, if you're standing side by side with people of all different ethnicities and you're all facing in one direction, then you're not sort of, it temporarily becomes... It's not invisible. It's not to say you become colorblind. I mean, Islam isn't colorblind. It does still recognize race. It recognizes people. As in the Quran, it says we created you in people so that you may know one another. It doesn't say we created you in people so you could pretend that you don't have any differences, you know. Yeah. Um, there's still visible differences there, but there, I think there are differences to be celebrated. And um, and in, in every context where white privilege manifests, which is pretty much everywhere, um, I think it's a case of using that privilege and that platform to be able to amplify voices that are typically not listened to as much. And, and it is a very difficult thing to, to tune into. So my husband's Iranian. He's visibly Middle Eastern, brown man. You know, in Europe, the Middle Eastern man also is particularly a particularly kind of horrible trope of yeah. violence and misogyny and so on and so forth. And, you know to get to know him you, you'd know that couldn't be further from the truth um but you know I'll sort of often go out in our town in a small small town in Spain it's a pretty diverse town for for a town in Spain and I'll go to the bakery and I'll go wherever and I'll get chatting with sort of local Spanish people I'll be like oh people are so lovely you know everyone's so nice and then I walk around with him and I'll realize that a person who will cast me quite a sort of neutral gaze or maybe be quite, be quite friendly to me will just inexplicably frown at him yeah. or exclude him from something. And, and even being married for like seven years, or I don't even know how, I think we've been together longer than that, um, it still surprises me because I do live in a bubble and that's what privilege does. And that's what's so kind of, it, it's like a tide. It's like a comforting kind of um, comfort blanket, you know, that's always like, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Come on, it's not your problem. And it's, it, I guess it's it's always about sort of having enough of a conscience that you want to kick that blanket off and sort of say, you oh, know, I want to be cold sometimes. and I don't want to be all warm and sort of snuggled up. I want to actually see what is happening for people. I don't so want to on, be separate. Yeah. So on, on, on that and, and probably our final note, because we've, we're coming to the end of um, the podcast uh, on, on this one, but what would you advise to people who are listening to this who are themselves racialized as white who would say that they struggle to make it personal that who how how do you turn it into from something that you start to observe and notice to something that becomes a fire in your belly i guess Oh, Apologies God, for the sirens. That's okay. It's COVID, COVID-19, yeah. COVID-19 Well, I guess it's about sort of just reducing your comfort and recognising everything that we are consuming is related to some kind of system of oppression and usually of people of colour and usually the people who are profiting from it are, are white 
or racialized as white. So from the food that we eat, you know, I, where I live on the coast of Spain, there are hundreds of kilometers of greenhouses where um, migrants who don't have papers and who are from usually from North and West Africa, they labor in horrific conditions and they don't have any recourse to law because they yeah. haven't got legal paperwork. Um, they're producing cheap food in the supermarket. So every time you eat a tomato, you're, you know, you are benefiting from that system. Um, the clothes that we wear, you know, we often, it's so easy to just go, oh, it's really cheap. You know, I'm just going to buy it and I need it. So I'm going to just mm -hmm. buy it without kind of even knowing, having read articles that uh, about sort of, you know, sweatshops collapsing in Bangladesh, it can fade into the background because I think psychologically, we don't like to deal with horror. And we will, uh, a part of us subconsciously will always try to minimize that and to, to soften it and to sort of be like, oh, you know, can't really deal with this right now. And and it is a really hard thing to to process and trauma, even if it's just witnessing somebody else's trauma is it is horrific. But I think finding ways of dealing with that trauma are really valuable for everybody, mm. like whether you're directly involved or not. And I think especially for people who are directly involved, of course. So yeah. as a as a person of faith, religion, uh, prayer, for example, um, liquor, you know, re remembrance of God, these are things that are they're not just sort of religious obligations and it's a box that you tick it's like it's actually a kind of a way of processing and coming back to you know processing pain a way of processing kind of psychological pain and emotional mm. pain which are really valid and maybe it's mindfulness maybe it's meditation or maybe it's gardening or maybe it's being among I don't know stroking a cat or there's all kinds of sort of scientists have looked at lots of different ways of, sort of stress management um not to reduce it to stress management per se, but it is very stressful to sort of witness and to be a part of that. And so there are there is a sort of an inward aspect of the work, and there's an outward aspect to the work. The outward aspect is, well, I'm going to choose not to buy this tomato that I know has been grown in this greenhouse in which probably somebody suffered. Um, I'm going to choose to buy something that or grow it myself. You know, I'm going to you know or go to a farmer's market or or try and avoid those sorts of easy patterns. Um, mm. which, which um, sort of looking for, enshrine or kind of entrench those uh, structures. So can I just ask just um, a final one, but do yeah. you think therefore that actually a lot of the reasons why people, who, white people are not confronting racism head on is to do with the fact that they can't face the, the the guilt or the um that that it's something di very difficult at an emotional level to confront because I sense that that's actually quite a different perspective to what we hear predominantly and I think a lot of people might say well you know is it guilt or is it just that actually you're really benefiting from the system and you have no incentives to change it Mm, I think it's both. I think, first of all, it's the comfort, you know, this is something that I don't want to sacrifice. You know, like if we were to actually bring in reparations as a form of like tax, you know, of course, people would be in uproar. They'd be like, oh, I struggled all my life for this money. And why should I have to give it up now? And, and of course, there are white people who, who do struggle economically, single mothers, you know, there's lots of people, working class people you could point to. Mm. Um, Oh, where where was I? <laughs> Suddenly gone off on a well, No, well, just the, the question of I I think it's an interesting one to discuss this idea All that about actually the feelings could, that it brings up. Yeah, could it be that actually you know at, at a, a psychological level? Because obviously the the reasons why some white people, a lot of white people, are not necessarily challenging racism head on could be um, analysed at multiple levels, right? One of which, which is human psychology. And and so I'm just interested in your point about guilt and, and making that making people turn away. Yeah. Um, but I'm also conscious of the fact that a lot of people might see that as a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is a tricky one. I mean, like, as Rachel Cargill said, it's not, it's not a self-development work for white people um however if it's an obstacle to somebody then i think it's worth looking at with the ultimate goal being to liberate black people and brown people from white supremacy that's your ultimate goal but if you have an obstacle in yourself which is oh i'm really struggling with this and i can't really see how i'm a part of this or something like that then that it is important to sit with it and it might just be 
a case of like taking a breath and maybe an hour later you feel differently, maybe 24 hours later you feel differently. But um, oh, there was something I wanted to say, about <laughs> I can't remember what it was now, about guilt. Oh yes, so anti-racism work is not about make, it's not about teaching white people to self-hate because it's not, it isn't necessarily true that you personally have set up all of these structures or that you were the cop who knelt on George Floyd's neck. I mean, if you personally didn't do it, there are a lot of people who'd be like, well, okay, but that's, it wasn't me that did that. So why are you making me feel guilty? Um, and I think it's not about teaching, um, teaching self-hate per se, but about encouraging people to just care. Because once you start caring, then it'll trigger a whole range of reactions that will come quite organically and it won't be a sort of a politically correct sort of response. It won't be like, you should behave this way and you should say this, because I think a lot of people um, resist that and react to that mm. because it feels like well, an attack yeah. on their freedom of speech or something like this. And I understand, but if you actually um, deepen that care that you have for other people, um, even people who you're maybe you've never met or people who you are not are not part of your immediate direct community then that will then encourage you to sort of investigate or examine your own behaviors and it'll it just casts everything in a whole different light all the things around you all the people around you the little events that take place you're going to respond to them differently because you just have that kind of personal investment of yeah just all right. Well, thank you so much, Medina, for sharing all of your thoughts with us today. Um, I thought that was very insightful. For those who are interested in finding out a bit more, then you can uh, order Medina's book, The Invisible Muslim. Um, it's available on Amazon. Where else, apart from Amazon, if people don't want to yeah, be you want to avoid pay, paying up Bezos? <laughs> yeah, you can buy it from you can buy it from Blackwells. They stock it. I also recommend this is Book Love, which is a brilliant small business black owned woman called Samantha who's really awesome I just want to give a little shout out to her um and she has a click and buy uh she has an online shop and I have a, she has a stock of my books that are all signed so you can go to her website so what um, was that website just so we get it again this is book love I think the, the website is, is uk. great but she's also on social media this is book love underscore um and she's really awesome Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you. And, and for those of you who want to find out a bit more about whiteness and, and the conversations that I've been having with various guests about this issue, you can head over to the website. That's www.weneedtotalkaboutwhiteness.com. And there will be uh, several other podcast episodes there and plenty more to come. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll be back very soon. Bye. Thanks, Medina. Thank you.